Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we continue to reflect on Ukraine's counteroffensive in the East, answer some of your questions, and we analyze whether Europe has done enough to avoid an energy crisis this winter. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 13th of September, day 202. And today, I'm joined by Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and our Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the war zone. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. It's 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 uh, difficult to say up north because of the the continued media blackout there. Journalists are are not being given access to information, which I think is probably the right position to take at the moment um, by the Ukrainian authorities. So we're relying on on social media and uh, including Russian social media and bits and pieces coming out from from Ukraine. But up up the north, it looks as if the advance has not continued at the at the pace that we saw over the weekend that's probably just because it it couldn't i mean the logistic lines were stretched out the um there are reports that that, that russia had withdrawn to the east bank of the oskil river that's the north south river from from kubyanks down to almost down to uh, izium um they were holding they seem to have moved on to the east bank but that there's that confers no great territorial advantage so they have moved further east from there we don't know whether or not Ukraine has managed to exploit that. We think they are across the river, but we don't know how far their forces have pushed to the east because they will be uh, tired and need resupply in terms of equipment and personnel, ammunition, all the rest of it. So we're not quite sure how how much further east they have progressed um, and where they've gone firm to consolidate what they have and sort of backfill the, the gains they've made. Um, however, it, it does look as if that that is fairly uh, firm. There's been no sign of, of Russian counterattacks in the north, and um, it looks as if the, the fighting that has continued in the areas of uh, Liman and um, Lysychansk, which is just to the west of Severodonetsk, that seems to be continuing. So pressure looks as if it it is still there in the north. Russia's made no no counterattacks as far as we can tell. There are many, many images of huge numbers of abandoned pieces of equipment, ammunition, so on and so forth. Uh, there's more social media about more images of the of the advances, and we saw American-supplied Humvees, um, so wheeled vehicle, armoured vehicles, wheeled, and um, and others, because these lightning advances have been 
we, we've seen images that a lot of them were on roads. You obviously can go a lot faster, generally, on roads than, than cross-country. And that also lends itself to wheels rather than tracks. Tracks tend to uh, need more servicing, uh, particularly on um, you know, if, you, if you really push them hard. So I would have thought, as we suggested yesterday, we saw some images of, of civilian vehicles, Toyotas, four by fours being used, I think, we would expect, as as more news comes out, we would expect to see more wheeled vehicles like of Humvee and, uh, and Bushmaster to have been used. Now, elsewhere, down in, in uh, Quezon, in the other the other counter-offensive going on there, the town of uh, Kisilivka, and again, please, I apologise for my poor pronunciation, um, that is about 15 kilometres northwest of Quezon City itself. It, it, it's the last major settlement between the Ukrainian lines and Kherson City, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, are saying that all but four Russian vehicles, uh, from from recent images, all but four of vehicles have been withdrawn from those forward positions there. Those positions, we think, have been held by the Donetsk People's Republic, the so-called self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic um, forces, so not regular troops, uh, and they look to have abandoned their positions and moved back to the river. Um, so not not over the, the Dnipro yet, but it looks as if they, they've pulled back. And that action could compromise the, the northwest outskirts of Kherson City itself. Whether Ukraine decide to try and go into the city or just isolate it and, and siege it out is another question. I mean, you, you then transition into from the offensive into urban fighting on the offensive, which is a, a completely different sort of scale of, of fighting required. So I don't know if they would actually go and try and move into the city. No further reports of partisan activity, although I, we have seen recent in recent days over the weekend reports that there was cooperation, possibly coordination, and certainly the, the morale boost by this by this lightning advance seems to have spurred many people to to have taken up arms in a sort of partisan type activity. Now, the Ukrainian spokesperson for Ukraine's Southern Operational Command said that Russian forces on the right bank of the Dnipro, um, just so, just a reminder, we talk about rivers in the, the direction they are flowing. So the Dnipro flows from the from the, yeah, from, from, the uh, from Ukraine down into the Black Sea. So if you're if you're floating on that, the, the right bank is the the northern bank or western bank, depending on on what, exactly where you are on the river. But the that's the bit that's that's um, Ukraine. Uh, sorry, Russia had pushed many thousands of troops across the Dnipro. That was the foothold they got around Kazan City and that piece of real estate itself. But the spokesperson for um, Ukraine's Southern Operational Command are saying that Russian forces on that right bank of the Dnipro, the, to the north and west of the Dnipro, are attempting to negotiate surrender. Numbers, we don't know where they come from. We don't know if it's if it's um, regular troops or some of these self-proclaimed People's Republic troops. We're not sure. But that is that is significant. And it all speaks to this this collapse in morale. Now, they are two different fronts, Kherson and Kharkiv. One doesn't necessarily immediately impact the other in terms of materiel, but any news from the north would would, Im- would impact the south. Um, so I think that is that is quite um, that's quite quite significant and one to watch. And just finally, uh, just to bring people up to speed, today's defence intelligence, British defence intelligence output, they've said that elements of the first guards tank army russia's first guards tank army have uh, took heavy casualties earlier in the war and was not fully fully reconstituted prior to the ukraine counterattack in kharkiv 
Um, now, why is that important? And that's because first, Guards Tank Army is described as one of the most prestigious units in the Russian military, allocated for the defence of Moscow, and was intended to lead any counterattacks in the in the event of a, f- a future war with NATO. So, a very prestigious unit that has been um, mauled, basically. And um, UK Defence Intelligence saying it's going to take years, their words, years to rebuild this capability. So a a very significant unit there. And the point I'm making is that it's one thing to talk about in the south, um, the like I say, these these people in the Donetsk People's Republic Army. Um, And then it's quite another to see a fully fledged, prestigious, uh, small p, professional military outfit like the First Guards Tank Army, who equally has been has been massively worn down by the uh, by the recent offences. So it was not a lucky strike by Ukraine. They were not going up against um, half-assed competition and just managed to push through. That they were they achieved significant results through the use of combined arms manoeuvre. All the different bits of the military orchestra working together. A sound, very sound operational plan. They concentrated their force. Russia's saying they had eight times as many troops. Ukraine had eight times as many troops as the word defenders, so they picked their moment correctly, they picked their location correctly, and their target, going for Kubiansk, which is a major railhead, which then fatally undermined the defence of Izium to the south, and once that broke, the shell broke, there was just this this route, and, and as has been described by you know, some wag I saw on Twitter, the difference between a withdrawal and a route is that in a withdrawal you tend to take your kit with you, and that's not what we saw as Russia broke over the weekend. Thanks, Tom. I've got a couple of questions on that, if I may. Um, first of all, you mentioned the severe mauling of the First Guards Tank Army. You also mentioned that we've not seen any uh, uh, any counterattacks by the Russian army in the east. Um, is there any sense at all that the Russian military on the ground is starting to get its act together in response to this attack? Or are there no, no, there are no green shoots whatsoever for, for, for them? Well, I... I I offer a cautionary note here to say there's no green shoots. I mean, we are seeing very little, I would suggest, of the front. Um, it would be unlikely, unwise, possibly, for Ukraine to, to keep us up to date on a day-to-day basis with all the setbacks they are having. However, we're not seeing a lot of information put out by Russia of their their amazing gains. I mean, they said over the weekend that, that there was there was no problem. They were... They were regrouping to the east, and they'd killed. They said, I think, something like two thousand Ukrainian troops. I mean, you know, I don't don't believe either of those. Or regrouping is a is a neat way of saying running away. Um, having said that, yeah, there's been no information since then from Russia of no images of towns with with a new um, you know, Russian flag on it that we can geolocate and try and time timestamp and, and and what have you. So I can't say there have been there's been no activity at all from Russia. But it doesn't look as if they've picked where and when to fight. So to decide what is important to them and then come up with a plan to defend it and, and, and work from there. Um, I mean, we, we, the, the general in charge of the Western Military District was replaced. We, we was, was sacked, you know, the fall guy for this lightning advance by Ukraine. So the new person in, in charge um, has, yet to, has yet to really have... a. a have a an idea of what the situation is and this seems to be part of the part of the big problem for Russia they do not have situational awareness i.e. knowing what the hell is going on either locally operationally which is sort of big big hand of Ukraine 
or strategically in terms of running this war. They just don't seem to be on the front foot here. They are overtaken by events. They are reacting to events rather than shaping them, which is which is absolutely not where you should be as a military or as a as a political uh, body trying to prosecute a war. So no, there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of um, any kind of pushback from Russia at the moment. As we said yesterday, the momentum at the moment is entirely with Kiev, and it's up to them to decide when and where this advance ends. You mentioned earlier some of the uh, rumours and the news trickling in potentially of, of Russian surrender around Hassan, or at least some units ne- negotiating their surrender. If the Russian front there collapsed in the same way that the front in the east has collapsed, that the lines in the east have collapsed, would would that be it? Would, would we could we start talking about the end game in this war, or or, or would that be far too premature? Um, too premature. Whether it's far too premature. I don't know, because the, the big difference there is the Dnipro River. So that is a massive obstacle, and Ukraine's been very active and seemingly successful in denying the crossings of that river to heavy military traffic. For many weeks, they targeted it and uh, such that civilian traffic, light traffic on foot or just in, in civilian vehicles could get across, but heavy military transport laden down with ammunition, etc., etc., could not. Um, now, whether the bridges are still up at all, uh, we don't we don't know. But they're certainly not they're not in any kind of fit state to offer a, a realistic line of resupply. Russia did establish a pontoon bridge on, over the river, but that's much slower to get any kind of heavyweighted material over, and that itself has been has been targeted. So, if Kherson to the 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 Kherson Oblast to the north and west of the Dnipro River, the area where there are thought to be thousands of Russian troops and including the city itself if that were to suddenly fall um, that would be a major a major victory for Ukraine Kazan being the first city the the first regional city to to fall and pushes Russia even further from their from their desire to take the south coast and Odessa but Ukraine would then ha- would then come up against a, a problem largely of their own making. I.e., how do they get across the Dnipro River to to further put pressure on Crimea? What it would do, though, it would allow them to bring their heavy artillery, long range, very precise artillery, the MLRS, multiple launch rocket systems, and the HIMARS, U.S. supplied HIMARS systems, e- that bit further, that bit closer to to Crimea. And as I've said many times, threatening Crimea directly or the routes into it and the and the water supply to it. That is a a major card. If if Ukraine can grab it, a major card they'll then be able to play because threatening Crimea would absolutely um, shape thinking in in Moscow. Can I just before we go to some listener questions, I'd just like to ask you to expand on one thing. Um, you mentioned earlier how the Russian defenders in the on the eastern front uh, were outnumbered eight to one by the Ukrainians. Um, that seems ast- astonishing, considering how it was almost the other way around when we were talking about some of the incremental advances by the Russian army in the east before, several months ago. We've had a, a point by a listener who just wants us to expand slightly on, on the sheer scale of this and how, and I think, you know, I think you mentioned this really, really in our third or fourth podcast ever about how the number of troops Russia was devoting to this war, this invasion, just simply wasn't enough to cover the vast geographical expanse of Ukraine. Yeah, so firstly, the eight to one, that came from Russia. Now, it it might be accurate. Um, it might be them trying to explain away their their defeat, but it but it it could well be accurate. I mean, we we generally say um, you need you need three to one a three to one advantage to have any kind of effect over over a 
over an enemy and that, and that can at least double in an urban environment which is very very hard to fight in so if they could if ukraine did manage to amass eight to one that is that is significant and and that they did so largely without russia noticing I, i'm i'm hesitant because there was chat in the russian military blogosphere about this about this build-up they didn't put numbers on it but they were they were talking about it and asking what what are the general staff doing about it there's a there's a build-up here um so it, it may well it may well be accurate but back to the numbers of um of troops so we think russia went in with about 106 between 160 180,000 troops on on february the 24th now they are not all frontline bayonets there, there's even even russia had did put some thought towards logistic resupply not a lot but a little bit so not not all frontline infanteers and tankies and all the rest of it um However, that was that was very quickly worn down, especially in the in the early weeks when they were ejected from the from the north. The current we haven't had any numbers recently from Washington and London. Um, Ukraine, the uh, authorities do put out regular, I mean daily casualty figures. They are they are they are up. They are saying there's over I think fifty three thousand Russian dead at the moment. Now, like I say. No way of verifying that. However, when we were talking casualties, probably a few, uh, two or three months ago now. Um, so initially, sorry, let me let me go back a step. When when people start talking about casualties, Ukraine and Russia, we all go, oh well, of course they're gonna they're gonna downplay their own casualties and and beef up how many they think they've killed from the other side. We think that is the case very much so with with Russia. However, quite early on in the war, I think the view started to change, and the view became actually Ukraine seems to be pretty accurate i mean there's always going to be a margin of error but i think western officials decided that ukrainian figures were not wildly outlandish so that that's all i've got on in terms of a view from from the west so ukraine now saying they've got over fifty thousand russians dead um i would imagine a western official not speaking for them but I, i'm guessing they would they would say well take five or ten percent um okay maybe ten or twenty percent of that let's say 40,000, might be a reasonable figure. I mean, a huge number. Um, Russia lost 15,000 fighters in 10 years of war in Afghanistan. You know, if they've now lost 40,000, 50,000 soldiers here in six months, that's just staggering. And, of course, the the general ratio is about three to one in terms of those killed to those to those wounded. So if you've got... I'm freezing maths because I'm going to have to take my socks off otherwise and do the adding up. But, you know, if you've got 50,000 dead... Then four times that is two hundred thousand. So that's that takes that takes in that, that's all your fighters that they arguably started with. Now they would have put some more in there as we as we've seen, and they've tried to raise local militia. Um, but any way you look at it, if if those figures are even close to accurate, then then the whole force that Russia went in with on February the twenty fourth is, or the force that's left, is just a just a pale shadow of what it of what it was and hence they're not able to move forward that this could be the reason why russia have done have done nothing bar smash their head against you know the wall in the donbass and make these really slow incremental highly attritional advances in the donbass why they're not able to put up with a a lightning um push through their lines in in kharkiv i mean they might they might not have the numbers they might they're almost certainly haven't got the quality left 
it it does come down to in many ways does come down to a numbers game and i just don't think russia has them there how long this goes on for and whether or not they can reconstitute over the next months slash years um I, I doubt that as well that's a conversation for another day but I, I think the numbers simply are not are not there for russia well that goes very quickly to a question from a listener from brandon uh who and i'm just we've talked about a lot of it actually so i'm just going to ask one part of it do do the Russians have any number of troops and equipment in other parts of the country that could be mobilised? Or is Russia throwing everything uh, they have available? Or do we just not know? So thank you very much, Brandon, from Canada, for that question. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. I mean, we, we don't know, is the, is the straight-up answer. Um, they Russia has has other stuff. I mean, we're seeing it now in Vostok 22, this big uh, arms, uh, big exercise in, uh, around Vladivostok, uh, which Russia's, Russia's hosting, China's there, a few others. Um and everything's going swimmingly, of course, because they're they're a great army, as you'd expect. So the, yeah, they've got they've got other stuff. I mean, the, the last stat we had again, this is probably a couple of months old, but um, Western officials were saying that that sixteen percent of Russia's entire army had been destroyed in Ukraine. So a, a larger proportion of 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 what they started with in Ukraine in this war on February the twenty fourth, but taken as a as a whole, this is like I say, a couple of months old, sixteen percent of the entire army. Uh, so I, I don't know, it has that nudged up to let's say twenty percent, which is which is huge. And as we've mentioned before, Putin needs to make a decision as to whether or not this is a war or whether or not this is the war in which he breaks his army to achieve achieve his aims because. Now, Russia doesn't like to leave itself exposed, and if you're losing a, a huge proportion of your of your army for this stupid adventure, then then people are going to start asking questions. Now, Russia has got a lot more stuff in the locker. They've got a uh, they've got a big navy, not brilliant, especially the aircraft carrier has more Kuznetsov that has to go with a tug everywhere because it keeps breaking down. A very very capable submarine service, though Russia has a, a hugely capable and modern submarine service. Um, Air Force not bad, a bit old, um, but but not bad, and uh, and other bits and pieces as well. Cyber, although we haven't really seen that in this um, in this war. So the army's taken a mauling, a big mauling, but there is a, a lot more, um, and from the other services as well, still still in in Russia, which can't. I'm not saying they can all be used in. Um, you know, you can't really use submarines in in Ukraine apart from firing missiles out of the Black Sea, and they should all be there. Turkey should not be allowing any more uh, any more vessels through the Bosphorus Strait. So there's a lot more, a lot more in the locker, but it might not necessarily have direct relevance to this war. Just one more question, and um, before I think we should talk just very quickly about the situation in Armenia and Azerbaijan because it's linked to what I think you've just said. Um, so this is from Brett in South Australia, who says I don't hear much about air warfare. Sorry, I'll try that again. This is from Brett in South Australia. He says I don't hear much about air warfare. Sorry, this is presumably not Brett's accent, but I assumed Russia would dominate the skies and that this would pr- provide their ground troops with an enormous advantage. What hasn't... Sorry, sorry, Giles. Why hasn't this happened? Does Ukraine have effective ground-based air defence systems? And if so, what are they? Yeah, we've all been a bit surprised by this, to be perfectly honest. The Russian Air Force seems very reluctant, and throughout this war, has seemed very reluctant to operate outside of Belarus and Russia. Um, If they they do go forward of those lines, they have been almost entirely flying over their own troops they have been extremely reluctant to go forward of their own troops and if you think about how you knit together military operations then you need this big umbrella 
of of a big bubble of, of a big safe zone where you can do whatever you like now that is largely imposed from the air so you need to either have air supremacy in which case you own everything <laughs> own everything from the ground up or local air superiority where for a certain uh, time in time and space you you own that little piece of real estate and you have to do this by pushing air defense assets in so you keep keep the in, in case of russia you keep ukrainian air assets um away air and aviation so fighter jets and and helicopters and what have you uh, and you have a an effective shield from any other uh, missiles um, coming in. So Russia have never really done that. And it's only by providing that big bubble that you then give confidence and protection to your troops on the ground to go in and do what they want. And hence come back to, I mean, it's partly because that's not in their doctrine. They, As, as we keep saying, they, they are very heavily led by artillery and then they send the ground troops in afterwards. But you know, they, you'd like to think they have something else up their sleeve. They've just they've been markedly reluctant to put their jets in harm's way. They also made the mistake in the very opening opening hours and certainly days of the war in that they didn't destroy the Ukrainian air force on the ground or in the air. So the Ukrainian air force managed to hang on and then and then sort of reconstitute itself both organisationally and and fix what uh, what damage it had it had taken. Um, I mean, I think we think they're much smaller, the Ukrainian Air Force, and, and have taken many casualties, but they are still there. But they have got air defence systems um, of, of similar, similar nature to Russia, so S-300 air defence systems that are very capable, very long-range, and uh, they've had more flowing in from the, from the West, uh, particularly of S-300. And um, so we think they've, they've managed to survive, and they've slowly built up their air defence capability, all of which has just added to Russia's reluctance to... To, um, to try and use its air power in any meaningful way. So very quickly, as I know you have to head off, um, the situation in Azerbaijan and Armenia, can you comment quickly on what we've seen uh, in, in the last 24 hours and, and why it's relevant, why it matters in relation to Ukraine? Yeah, so last night, so what, where are we now? What day is it? Tuesday? So Monday night, um, Azerbaijan started uh, attacking Armenia. So Armenia is backed by Russia. Uh, Azerbaijan seems to have taken the opportunity of a, of a distracted Russia to attack i mean there's been a simmering conflict there for for decades we think there's 49 armenians or 49 armenians have been declared uh, to have been killed last night but we think this is azerbaijan taking taking opportunity of a of a weakened russia who's not going to be able to support its um uh, the the armenians now whether or not this is anything is if this is going to presage anything bigger if this is the decline of russian power if russian is seen as no longer able to export security no longer able to be the um the the big provider that's very interesting so it has azerbaijan taken uh, taken advantage here it comes in the week that the shanghai cooperation organization summit is going to take place that's on thursday friday this this week in uzbekistan so this is an eight member organization russia china um some of the stans uh, a few others uh and uh, it's President Xi, Xi Jinping is going to go to it. The first time President Xi has been outside China since the start of the COVID pandemic. So this big security summit, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how they play it because Russia can't, can't sort of stride the stage as this as this great provider of security because it's just shown that it's not not capable of doing so. Now, whether or not, you know, I'd love to I'd love to know what what China says uh, you know, behind the scenes to to Russia on this because China aren't going to be happy this. This idea that might is right, that autocracies love, is being shown not to work. Um, so it's not it's not helping China out at all. To, but it'd be very fascinating to to, um, to be a fly on that wall. But like I say, whether or not 
Azerbaijan has taken advantage of this moment to to push against Armenia. Um, we're going to have to wait to see if that's the case. Will others will others do the same? So Kazakhstan, for example, had um, uh, violence flared up in January this year in Kazakhstan over energy prices, and it had to rely on the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. What Russia would like to think is the sort of their equivalent of NATO, although it's kind of ninety eight percent Russian troops, some of the Stans, um, Armenians, a few others. Um, the CSJO went into Kazakhstan to quell that rebellion. A couple of hundred were killed in January. Uh, so kept Tokayev's rule in power in Kazakhstan, but Tokayev was not happy that Russia was so so readily showed that it could just march in wherever it liked and, and believes it has a vote and it's near abroad. And since then, President Tokayev has, has been outspoken, saying that he doesn't re- recognise the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, which you know got him, got him some hard glares from Putin. So... Kazakhstan is trying to distance itself a little bit from Russia. Whether or not they take advantage of this weakened state, um, we've yet to see. But it will be very interesting to see if what's happening in Ukraine is having ramifications elsewhere and Russia's near abroad that we know Putin is absolutely paranoid about and sees the, the decline of the Soviet influence as, as one of the greatest sort of um, mistakes of the 20th century. If actually his, his actions there have led to um, Azerbaijan to take to take action maybe kazakhstan what's going to happen in georgia if all these if all these republics now feel and all these other countries feel emboldened by a weak russia then it then it it could be very very dangerous for putin dom nichols thank you very very much so just to paint a picture for our listeners of course the telegraph newsroom is rather busy this week ahead of the funeral of queen elizabeth ii so dom nichols has just left the podcast chair off um, to meet some contacts francis sternley assistant comment editor has joined us francis i know you've been doing some reading about the energy crisis in europe and some potentially positive developments would you like to talk our listeners through what you've been seeing well thank you david and good afternoon everyone The energy front has been something that I've focused on very heavily in recent months. And obviously, we've been talking so much in the recent days about the developments in the military sphere. But actually, there's been some really significant ones on the energy front and quite positive, too. So a report has been released by Goldman Sachs, the famous investment company, saying that in its view, Europe has, quote, successfully solved the puzzle on how to face the winter without Russian natural gas. They believe that prices are likely to drop by more than half. And if that's true, of course, this will have big, big ramifications on the feared severity of the winter and the subsequent consequences on the, or potential consequences, should I say, on the war in Ukraine and support provided by European powers. Now, we can say comfortably now that European natural gas prices are back to July levels and are close to halving from the top. Now, we don't know, of course, where things are going to go in the in the next few weeks or months, the markets are particularly volatile at the moment for obvious reasons. But it would appear that a lot of the calculations that were being made on the energy front were assuming the barrel prices and uh, other metrics would remain as high consistently through the winter as they are now. And that would seem to have been overly pessimistic that the market as we thought on this podcast has started to adapt accordingly and more positive signs are now emerging as i say 
it things are likely to be volatile to go up and down so expect some headlines still doom laden as it were on this question but i think that we can start to say that things may be heading in a more positive direction and that'll obviously be a huge sigh of relief for many on the ukrainian political front and just on that there's been quite a lot of commentary today that really energy was one of the big cards maybe even the last cards that putin could play um and if that if that has failed where does that leave him Yes, well, I agree. And as you and I were walking to Green Park yesterday to see the flowers that have been left for our late Queen, we were talking about this very question. What cards does Putin have? Well, the energy was one, perhaps the key one. There's obviously the threat of full mobilisation. But as I said on the podcast yesterday, that would take months to come into effect and to have any noticeable difference on the battlefield. So I think that is an option that he doesn't really have to turn things around in the short term. There's the nuclear threat of of sabre rattling on nuclear weapons and tactical sides. And we've covered that a lot. So I won't do that um, again now. Um, So his options are dwindling. The one I think that should be the greatest cause of concern is still around Zaporizhia, which we've not talked about as much in recent days for obvious reasons. But that power plant, that nuclear power plant, still has the, the ability, I think, to change the current situation in ways that we haven't really talked about so much. There's obviously been a lot of talk about Um, him using this as a bargaining chip. But what if they were able to orchestrate some kind of incident there that was so severe in nature that immediately Putin was able to pretend to to have this uh, virtuous position and declare some kind of ceasefire? It would be in the interests of the Ukrainians not to accept that militarily with things going as positively as they are. And thereby... Ukraine would be in a situation as potentially appearing to be fighting an aggressive war uh, when the option of peace was on the table. And that might unsettle political leaders around Europe. I'm not saying it would, but it might. And Putin, who, as I say, is no doubt desperate right now, will be looking for any options available to him. And that could be one of them. So, as I say, I don't think it's likely But I'm saying that if you're in a desperate situation, that is one of the few opportunities he has to completely change the current state of affairs. Now, I know that some listeners, as I'm saying this, will be thinking you shouldn't be talking about this. You know, it's risky to be talking about you're giving ideas uh, to (laughs) to the Russians. Well, what I would say is, is that for one, if the Russians are relying on us rather than their own intelligence services, then they're in the worst state than than even we realize. But more fundamentally, to address the, the this nuclear threat and, and the energy crisis, we have to talk about these things and so that in a democratic society or democratic societies, politicians can begin that process of adaptation. It's the, Sorry, you just say adaptation. Begin the process of that adaptation. It's the cornerstone of the democratic systems that we're supposedly defending. So whilst I accept that it's not comfortable sometimes to be talking about these subjects, I think it's absolutely vital that we do so that we can start thinking about how to react accordingly and and prevent the worst from happening. Zooming out slightly from Ukraine, Dom has given us a, a brief overview of some concerning events in Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, Could you just talk us through your analysis of what's happened there? Sure. Well, it's early days on this, and I'm sure we'll hear much more over the course of today. We're recording this uh, early lunchtime here in London. 
Azerbaijan, as I'm sure Dom has already said, is apparently shelling Armenia all along the border. This is a big escalation on fighting within these contested territories. Now, one could say, well, it, it doesn't really matter. It pales in significance to what's going on in Ukraine. But it does speak, I think, to uh, the precarious situation that Russia is clearly in militarily. And these other countries are adapting their strategies accordingly at this moment of real Russian weakness. Armenia is Russia's or one of Russia's firm security partners. And so this timing is not a coincidence. Azerbaijan is making the most of Russian weakness. It is an evaporation of the threat posed by Russia. And as a consequence, countries are adapting and moving to try and make gains from that, strategic gains. I think it's worth emphasising that the myth, and we now can say it is a myth, of Russian military might has cast a very long shadow over how countries have treated Russia, including foremost countries in the West, of course, for many, many years now, decades even. And so the evaporation and disintegration of this mythology built around the Red Army and the Russian army will have huge impacts in the long run. Because once you remove that threat, and particularly if you're thinking in yourself in a position of of trying to benefit from moving away from Russian influence, then now is the time to be thinking and moving in these ways. But as I say, it's very early days. We're hearing that Armenia may well formally appeal to uh, its defence treaty with Russia, which would put, again, Putin in quite a difficult situation because he won't want to appear weak by saying that he hasn't got the capacity to respond. Um, But at the same time, it's important for him to put up a robust front and make it clear that that the war in Ukraine isn't going that badly and that he has troops to spare. So we'll have to monitor this closely. But as I say, we should look at it more in terms of the broader significance of the collapse of the Russian army that seems to be taking place in Ukraine. Finally, Francis... Yesterday, we touched on some uh, some interesting news of um, dissent in Russia from councillors uh, in the West. Um, has there been anything else you've seen? Yes, uh, this is obviously something that we shouldn't get too overexcited about just because we hear certain figures in Russia criticising the regime. It doesn't mean that there's a revolution imminent, far from it. And indeed, I would echo uh, and did echo Roland's remarks yesterday that I don't think we should be getting ahead of ourselves and and be expecting there to be a coup anytime soon. Famous Lard's words there. Um, But I did want to just point attention to some interesting statements made by the Chechnyan leader, of course, very firm Kremlin loyalist. Indeed, I think early on in the war, he was talking about them marching all the way to Kiev, even when things were were, were going awry. But he has criticised openly in the last 24 hours the Russian army's performance in Ukraine following the defeats that we've seen around Izium over the weekend. And he posted an 11-minute message on Telegram, this being the main source of information for many Russian loyalists following the war, saying that the invasion is not going to plan. And that in and of itself is a huge admission of the shift in tone of of, of what we've seen uh, in in recent weeks and saying that he may be forced to lecture Putin uh, that it is not going well. So very strong language indeed from, as I say, one of the staunchest supporters of the Kremlin. And if this is indicative of a change in attitude uh, across Russia, 
then I think that's very, very interesting indeed. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. 